When everything falls apart, where do you turn? If you were to lose everything you have in this world today, where would be your hope? We're now in the second week of Lent, a season of examining our lives and asking for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us those areas that need to be conformed more to a life of discipleship. And we're going to be in Psalm 33 this morning. And the thing I want to challenge you with is this. Where is your hope? That is what these verses we're going to be looking at are all about. Where is your hope? And that is a key question to be asking ourselves, not only during this Lent season, but really at all times through this life that is filled with trials. Because there are many false hopes in this world. There are many false hopes that want to deceive us. But there is only one true hope. Only one hope that will not let us down. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 33. And we're going to be focusing on verses 13 to 19. Psalm 33, verses 13 to 19. And the first thing is in this text that in order to have a right hope, we need to start with a right perspective. If you don't have the perspective of verses 13 to 15, then verses 16 to 19 are going to sound like foolishness. Look with me at those verses. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. From heaven, the Lord looks down. When scripture emphasizes heaven as God's dwelling place in this way, it's often seeking to make a point about God's sovereignty. It is showing how high he is above all things. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or think about Psalm 2, which is talking about the futility of the raging and plotting of nations and peoples against the Lord. And it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Why? Because the Lord is in charge, not those earthly rulers. God is ultimately going to triumph over them. And it's the same thing going on here. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all the children of mankind. The Lord knows everything that happens on this earth. And not only does he know it, but he is over it all. That's why a few verses earlier, Psalm 33 talks about the power of God's word. Beginning at verse 9, it says, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Despite the raging and plotting of nations and people against our God, he ultimately has complete sovereignty over all that he has made. But not only do the Lord's plans triumph over the plans of the rulers of this age, 
These verses also give us an image of God's intimate knowledge of the people he created. Verse 14 says, from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. This phrase, from where he sits enthroned, in scripture actually has the connotation of sitting on a judgment seat. And what is he doing on his judgment seat? He's looking out or gazing, could also be translated. He's gazing on all the inhabitants of the earth. Like a judge, God is inspecting the inhabitants of the earth that he created. And he's not only inspecting our outward actions, but our inner thoughts and intentions. Look at verse 15. He is the one who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. He is the one who created us, who created our hearts, and so he knows all of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That can be an intimidating thought, can't it? <laughs> you mean God knows all those lustful thoughts that I have? All those angry thoughts? All those self-centered thoughts? Yes. He's the one who formed your heart. And so he knows your heart. He keeps watch over all the inhabitants of the earth. But as we're going to see, though this watchfulness of God may at first cause us some unease knowing our own sinful hearts, it is this very watchfulness that is actually our greatest comfort in this life. Here's the key, though, from verses 13 to 15. God is the sovereign king and judge over all things. And what we're going to see now is that whether we accept or reject that perspective will affect where we put our hopes in this world. Whether we accept or reject the perspective of God's sovereignty and judgment over all the things of this world is going to affect where we put our hopes in this world. Let's turn to verses 16 to 17 now. Because once we have the perspective that God is in charge of all the things of this world, doesn't it make sense that it would be futile to put our hope in anything besides him? But it's not as easy as it sounds, is it? <laughs> because there is a real deceitfulness about riches and possessions and reputation in this world and all sorts of other things the devil tries to use to transfix our hope. I don't think there's a single person among us who has not at some time been severely tempted to put our hopes in temporal things, in the things of this world. It might be money, it might be job security, it might be other people's opinion of you or a political leader fitting in this season. Could be anything. If you can identify with that sort of temptation like I can, then these are good verses to meditate on. Because they teach us that if you put your hope 
in things of this world, no matter how strong and sure they may seem, those hopes are going to let you down. If you put your hopes in the things of this world, those hopes are going to let you down. Read with me at verse 16. It says, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. If you were to translate this Hebrew more woodenly, it's very emphatic. It says literally, there does not exist a king who saves himself by a great army. And a warrior never delivers by his great strength. There does not exist a king who saves himself by a great army. Do you see how radical that statement is? It's saying no king, no ruler, no nation exists or ever has existed that has won a battle because of its military strength. And if you don't have the perspective of the previous verses, you're probably thinking right now, well, that's not true. Actually, that sounds ridiculous. I'm no expert on history, but didn't Assyria defeat Israel? Didn't Babylon defeat Judah? Didn't Persia defeat Babylon and Greece defeat Persia and Rome overtake Greece? Didn't military strength have something to do with that? <laughs> you think even in more of the modern era, wasn't the addition of U.S. military strength and strategy important and decisive in turning around World War II? Doesn't military strength play a significant part in determining the outcome of a war? What is it saying here? It says it. There does not exist a king who saves himself by a great army. How can that be true? Well, the perspective of verses 13 to 15 is the key. If God really is reigning sovereignly over all the inhabitants of the earth and over all the affairs of mankind, then military strength can never be the determining factor in a battle. When Assyria defeated Israel, Babylon defeated Judah, yes, those nations had much greater military power than Israel, but that's not why they won. In fact, until God allowed that victory, they had been thwarted at every attempt to overtake Israel. There's a great scene in 2 Kings 19 where King Sennacherib, who's the king of Assyria at the time, he's all but destroyed Judah. He's come and ransacked all the towns, and he's in Jerusalem, ready to overtake the capital city and the temple and the king, who is Hezekiah at the time. But then Hezekiah prays, and the Lord turns away the Assyrian army. We actually have a record outside of the Bible of what Sennacherib had to say about this encounter. As it turns out, he wrote quite a bit about his military successes. As one of my professors says, after his military victory, Sennacherib liked to tweet about it. <laughs> um, and he did. This is what he had to say about Hezekiah. He says, as for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, 
I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns. I took as plunder 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in the royal city of Jerusalem. Then he stops there. And of all the 8th century tweets that Sennacherib wrote out about his victories, that we know of at least, this is the only one where he doesn't mention the defeat of the city that he had besieged. <laughs> because he didn't defeat it. <laughs> there does not exist a king who saves himself by a great army. And then the psalmist goes further and says this in verse 17. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great, great might, it cannot rescue. War horses and chariots that they would pull behind them were incredibly important in battle in Israel's context. Just think about Pharaoh's army pursuing Israel to the Red Sea with all of their horses and chariots and the great fear that that caused Israel. In fact, kings in the ancient Near East would count up the number of horses and chariots they had in order to determine their military strength. They were putting their hope in those things. depending on those things for victory. I don't know what the modern equivalent would be, maybe counting up the number of planes in a country's air force or ships in its navy. What does the Lord say? Those horses and chariots are a false hope for salvation. That word for false hope could also be translated simply as a lie. War horses cannot bring salvation. Their promises of deliverance are a lie because it is the Lord who determines the outcome of a battle. Proverbs 21 says it this way, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. This is probably why in Deuteronomy 17, when the Lord is laying out the rules for the future kings of Israel, he specifically commanded that the king must not acquire many horses for himself. That's an interesting detail. The Lord didn't want Israel's kings to trust in military might rather than in him. Okay, what does this all mean for us now? <laughs> Here's the principle this verse is laying out. The strong things of this world the things that seem most certain to us, the things of this world that we think can be depended upon to get us what we want, they can't really give us what we think they can. They can't give us what they promise. These things are like a king's mighty army. They have the appearance of strength, but because the Lord is the one who reigns on, the, on his throne, 
They can't deliver what they promise. And there's plenty of ways that we do basically the same thing as the kings in Israel's day. We may not count up horses to measure our military strength, but don't we count up our money and possessions to determine our earthly security? And I bring up money and possessions because that's a huge danger in a country like the U.S. where there is so much wealth and prosperity. And the ironic thing is the more prosperous you are, the more likely you are to be tempted to set your hopes on the things of this world, on the things that you own. I know I certainly feel that temptation. That's why Jesus stated it so starkly when he said, you cannot serve God and money. Can't do it. But it may not be money and possessions for you. It may be something else. What are the things you set your hopes on? The things that you are most certain about in your life. The things that you can count on. Maybe your job, your financial stability, even your family. These are all very good things in themselves, aren't they? And things that are right to want and even pray for. But when you put your ultimate hope in any of these things, they are destined to disappoint you. I know this is one thing that my wife Katie and I talked about last year as we were preparing for marriage, is that as excited as we were to be married finally, we were talking about this and saying, we can't put our hope in one another. Our hope still needs to be in the Lord. And let me tell you, that is really difficult to do. <laughs> That's something that we'll probably always be having to remind each other of and struggling through. It's often the best things that we have in this life that are the most tempting to put our hopes in. But when we put our hopes in things of this world, they are going to betray us. That idea of betrayal is actually a specific point the text is making. That word for false hope in this passage is actually a word that's often used in a covenantal context. It's used several places elsewhere in the Bible to describe someone who is false to a covenantal agreement. So when you place your hope in something, when you set your hopes on something of this world, in effect, you're making a little covenant with it. And saying, this thing has promised me something, promised me happiness, or whatever it may be, and I've believed it. Isn't this what so many advertisements and really the whole grain of our culture wants us to think? It's pushing us towards it. Our culture wants us to believe that happiness and satisfaction and all these things can be gained by the things that are of this world. It wants us to set our hopes on these lesser things. But it's a lie. 
The war horse is a false hope, a lie for salvation. And so is every temporal thing you set your hopes on, no matter how certain it seems. You you may be thinking right now, this is all well and good, but how do I know when I've crossed that line from hoping for something, which is a good thing, to hoping in it in an ultimate way? Well, the text doesn't specifically tell us how to determine that, but I want to just give you a couple suggestions based on my own experience. And one test is to think about what things cause you anxiety. What things cause you anxiety? Of course, it's possible to have anxiety over something without having inordinate hopes set on it. Even Jesus experienced anxiety as he was about to go to his his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I found that usually, at least for me, anxiety points to some deeper problem. It's pointing to a problem with my perspective. It's when my focus is earthbound and not looking at the greater perspective of God's providence and sovereignty and goodness that I find myself most prone to anxiety. So are you constantly anxious about finances? You may be setting your hopes on money. Are you constantly anxious about what your future holds? You may be setting your hopes on earthly success. Maybe any number of things for you. So ask yourself, what is it in your life that causes you anxiety? That could be an area where your hopes are in something temporal. And then another test is to ask yourself if there's anything that you desire to have that you feel, if I have that, then I'll be happy. If I have that thing, then I'll be happy. Is there anything like that in your life? That also may be something you're setting your hopes on. Why is this so important? Well, God's word teaches us about it, of course, is the Simple answer. But practically speaking, in the Christian life, we need to realize the vast importance of this because the Lord promises us that trials are going to come to us. I'm looking at a number of faces right now that I know you have incredible trials in your life even now. Adversity is inevitable. Even the most certain things of this life, the things that seem like you can count on them, even those things are going to fail you. And if you've set your hopes on any of these things, whether it's money or your job or a new house or anything else, how are you going to make it through those trials when the very things that have let you down were what you were putting your hope in? When we meet the inevitable adversities of this life, we need to have our hope in something that cannot fail. We need to have our hope in something that cannot fail. And there is only one thing that fits this description. And that is the steadfast love of the Lord. And that is what verses 18 and 19 are about. 
Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, the same watchfulness of the Lord that brings all the strong things of this world to futility is also the greatest comfort that we who follow him can ever know. The eye of the Lord is on you when you hope in his steadfast love. That is, when you hope in his covenantal faithfulness that says to us, you will be my people and I will be your God. The eye of the Lord that strikes terror into his enemies brings comfort to those who hope in him. Can you think of anything more fear-inspiring for those whose hope is in this world or anything more glorious for those whose hope is in the Lord? He watches over us. He watches over us. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. The Lord watches over us. And what is the result of his watchfulness? Verse 19, he delivers our souls from death, keeps us alive in famine. These would have been two of the foremost dangers for Israel when a king like the one in verse 16 came up against them. Death and famine. Obviously, death was a danger in battle. And famine was a danger also if that king were to besiege their city or even burn their fields. But it says the Lord delivers his people from those things. Of course he does, because the things the king is relying on to destroy Israel are false hopes. The Lord is the one who's in charge. And we also have an enemy who seeks our death, who seeks to separate us from God. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what the devil would love more than anything is to divide our hope. If he can just get us to start putting our hopes in wealth, possessions, earthly security, even in our own family, then he has a wedge he can start driving between us and the Lord. But I'm convinced that Satan's efforts will fail. Paul says that because Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave, and is interceding, us, interceding for us even now at the right hand of God, there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. 
I know that this life brings with it many trials. Psalm 33 doesn't deny that. In fact, it confirms it when it says that God delivers us from death and famine. It doesn't say death and famine and all those other trials won't come. It says that God will deliver us from them when we hope in his steadfast love. I began this morning by asking you what you would do if everything you have in this world were taken from you today. Well, if you recall, there's a man who had this happen to him in the Bible. His name was Job. He not only lost all his great wealth and possessions, but he lost all of his sons and daughters. He lost all of his health. In fact, it seems the only thing he didn't lose was his wife who told him to go curse God and die. <laughs> and you probably know the story that Job responds righteously, saying that he'll worship the Lord anyway. But his great loss did begin to wear him down. And you do sense some bitterness creeping in, some bitterness towards God. This happens to us, doesn't it? When trials continue on and on and on. But he had, through it all, one hope that he was holding on to. And he says it in Job 19. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Like Job, we need a hope that extends beyond all the things of this world, that extends beyond our life, even beyond our death. We need a redeemer who lives forever. Money and possessions will let you down. Political leaders will certainly let you down. Even the best of friends and family at some point will probably let you down. And if by some miracle none of these things seem to let you down in this life, then eventually you're going to die. And if you have your hope set in those things, are they able to save your soul? Did they die for you? There's only one thing that won't let you down, and that is the faithfulness of God, his steadfast love. How do I know that? Because we have a redeemer who not only lives, but endured death and even the wrath of God for our sake, and yet was not overcome by it. But on the third day, he rose up out of the grave and is alive today, interceding for us at the Father's right hand. So I know that my hope in him is certain, and that nothing, not even death, can ever keep him from fulfilling his promises. The trials of this life are not easy. God never said they would be. But he has promised that he will be with us and be faithful to us. 
and that he will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. So as we look to the resurrected Jesus, let us confidently say with the psalmist, no matter what comes our way, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen.